Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 30 today. If you are without a copy of God's Word, you can uh, make use of the Pew Bible there in front of you and find our sermon text on page 890. And once you've found your place, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 5, verse 30. Hear the Word of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the sacred writings. That we might come this morning and see your son, Jesus, all the more clearly, to whom you have borne witness. I pray that you would rid us of all of our pride and everything in us that desires the praise of man, that we may see Jesus for who he truly is and embrace him for eternal life. Use your word and spirit, send your spirit to do this. I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. may be seated. The words of Jesus in verse 30 summarize where we've been the last two weeks. 
Jesus came to a man who was lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed that man with his powerful word on the Sabbath day. And instead of falling at Jesus' feet and rejoicing over the one who brings our eternal rest from sickness and sin, the Jews begin persecuting Jesus and they seek all the more to kill him. They determine that this man who's calling God his father and making himself equal with God has got to die. And so Jesus then responds to their opposition by pointing out that their anger toward him is really groundless. As God's son, he can only do what God himself does. His very nature as divine son is to do what his father does. Jesus shares in the eternal love and the immediate self-disclosure of the Godhead. And in his role as son, he accomplishes the Father's will perfectly. That's true in all that he's doing in Jerusalem, like healing a man on the Sabbath day. And that will be, still be true on the last day when he judges the world. And that's what he says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's his father. Now, if that's the case, that Jesus can truly do nothing on his own, but only what he sees his father doing, if that's true, and that's true all the time, then that's also true with the way Jesus speaks about himself. In other words, God the Father's unity with God the Son means that Jesus can't even say anything about himself that is not simultaneously an expression of what his Father thinks about him. Every time Jesus testifies about himself, the Father simultaneously bears witness to the Son. That's his point in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise when the divine Son does nothing on his own but only what he sees his Father doing? And if that means the Father revealing the true nature of the person of Jesus to the Jews after healing a man on the Sabbath, the Son is right there with the Father, speaking so that all might know who He really is, God in the flesh. Now, to help the Jews see this, Jesus steps back for a minute, and He lays out four additional witnesses given by His Father. Jesus has already implied what his own words are, they are those given by his Father. But if that were not enough to convince them, perhaps it would help them to see that Jesus' testimony about himself is perfectly consistent with what his Father has been saying to the Jews all along. 
So Jesus introduces us to the Father's testimony in verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. And he's speaking about the Father there. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And then we see his Father's testimony play out in four additional witnesses concerning Jesus. So if you ask, all right, Jesus, this Father-Son talk, how is it exactly that the Father has borne witness to you? Jesus' response would be in at least these three ways, in at least these four ways. Number one, the Father sent John the Baptist before Jesus. The Father sent John the Baptist before Jesus. Jesus brings John up in verse 33 You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. We were first introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 6, where we learn that John didn't come to Israel on his own. The Bible tells us there was a man sent from God whose name was John. God the Father sent John the Baptist. He raised him up within Israel to be a forerunner to Jesus' ministry. God assigned John to the specific task of announcing the day of God's visitation, just like the prophets had said. John came as a witness to bear witness about the life-giving light arriving in the person of Jesus. He came so that through his own baptism ministry, all of Israel would know that their long-awaited Messiah had arrived in the man from Nazareth. In fact, John even told Israel in chapter 1, verse 32, he told Israel, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. Not on another man, it remained on Jesus. Which was the Father's way of telling Israel, this one, this one and no other, is my unique son. And Jesus' point here in verse 33 is that the Jews had already heard the Father's testimony through John. They even sent to John the Baptist and asked him about the Christ and asked him about what all this baptism business is about. And John told them exactly what he was doing and who the Christ really is. It's in this way that John was a burning and shining lamp. That's what Jesus calls him in verse 35. God appointed John as a lamp to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ through his witness, to uphold before a dark and dead people, the people of Israel, to uphold before this dark and dead people the message that light and life have come through Jesus Christ. This was the Father's witness through John the Baptist. Jesus isn't saying these things about John to add anything to his credibility before others. He's saying these things so that their eyes would be open to see that when John was teaching them about Jesus, the Father was bearing witness to his Son. If they were to see and embrace that for themselves, they would be saved. That's Jesus' ultimate concern here. Notice there in verse 35 that they were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Just 
for a while. Jesus doesn't want these Jews rejoicing only for a while in John's light. And then giving it up once John's popularity goes out the window and Herod cuts off his head. Jesus wants these Jews rejoicing for an eternity in the light of God's Son. Verse 34 says, I say these things so that you may be saved. Isn't that just like our Savior? The Jews were persecuting Jesus and seeking all the more to kill him. And Jesus concerns himself with their eternal salvation. He endures their misguided accusations in order to give them life in himself. He doesn't return evil for evil. Soon he will be crucified at their hands, and in his resurrection life, Jesus will empower his disciples to extend the same life in Christ again to those who crucified him. Some of you have been opposing Jesus for years. And in this text, we're reminded that Jesus still extends his salvation to you in spite of your opposition. He says these things so that you who oppose him might be saved. We'll see in a minute why the Jews don't like this about Jesus. He doesn't fit their agenda of self-glory but requires death to self-glory for the eternal good of others. Number two, the Father gives special works to Jesus. The Father gives special works to Jesus. This is the second way the Father bears witness. John the Baptist's testimony in and of itself is great because the Father introduces his son to Israel through John's ministry. But Jesus ups the stakes a bit in verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing that is right before their eyes, like healing people on the Sabbath. These bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So let's get this straight. The works the Father gives Jesus are greater than John's testimony, not because John's testimony was of lesser importance, or because John's testimony contained less truth. Rather, the works the Father gives Jesus are greater than John's testimony because John's testimony itself could never bring God's purposes to pass. John could announce God's purposes to save his people, but God's purposes to save his people could only materialize in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's one thing for John the Baptist to say that it's a point to Jesus and say to Israel, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a whole other thing to be the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sin of the world. The Father has given special works to Jesus and for Jesus alone to perform. And these works bear a greater witness than the testimony he gave John to speak. Jesus' works actually bring to pass God's purposes to save and, therefore, they are yet another way the Father bears witness to His Son. The works He has entrusted to His Son have a unique, divine quality to them. 
They are works that belong to God Himself. Works that only God could perform. And by giving them to Jesus, the Father is declaring to the world, this is who my Son is, God in the flesh. And this is why my Son has come, to rescue you. So, for example, to this point in the Gospel of John, we have seen these special works given to Jesus. The Divine Son has come from heaven to earth. He changes the water in Cana into wine. He cleanses the temple in Jerusalem from its corruption. He causes the new birth in sinners. He creates true worshipers from adulterers like the woman at the well. He cures a sick son with a single word. He commands the lame to walk. He carries out everything needed for our ultimate rest with God. He calls those who are spiritually dead to life with his own voice, and he will consummate the kingdom of God by raising the dead and judging them. If you can do those things, you are not merely a prophet. You are not merely a moral teacher or a good example. You are God Almighty. And that's the whole point of Jesus' works. The Father gives these special works to His Son, not merely to amaze the people with His power, but to reveal Jesus' glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' works, like the healing of the, man, of the lame man on the Sabbath, are the Father's way of saying to us, God has come to save you. The eyes of the blind are being opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The age has come when the lame man leaps like the deer and the tongue of the mute, mute sing for joy. Just like Isaiah said. My son has arrived. The kingdom of God is almost here. Look to him, all you rebels, and be saved. That's God's message through Jesus' works. The Father gives special works to Jesus. Third, a third witness from the Father. The Father personally bears witness to Jesus. He personally bears witness to Jesus. John's testimony and Jesus' works are indirect ways the Father bears witness to Jesus. This third witness given by the Father is more direct. We see it at the beginning of verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself born witness about me. That is, the Father didn't send His Son into the world and leave us guessing about who the Savior might be. He bore witness to Jesus Himself. Turn with me back to chapter 1, verse 33. Chapter 1, verse 33 there, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him. That is, John didn't know Jesus as the Messiah. I know him as my cousin. I don't know him to be the Messiah. I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water 
said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who told John the Baptist this? He who sent John to baptize with water. The Father. The Father has himself borne witness about Jesus. He told John from heaven who to look for and how to point him out. On top of that, the other gospel writers tell us that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened to Jesus and there was a voice heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now you can make the argument that the whole deal was fabricated by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, we should remember that, the, that they wrote their gospel based on eyewitness testimony. Meaning, if you don't take our word for it, go ask the others who heard it. They're still alive. They heard the voice as well. In fact, the Father does speak one more time from heaven in John's Gospel. Chapter 12, verse 28. If you want to go there with me real quick. Speaks one more time from heaven. And the crowd standing near Jesus in verse 28 says that they heard it and said it had thundered. It's verse 29, sorry. The crowd stood there and they heard it, that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, I know who I am, but this voice has come from my Father in heaven that you might know who I am. The Father has himself borne witness to his Son, Jesus, and this should not be a surprise to the Jews. Even if God had never communicated to the ones Jesus is speaking to audibly or visibly, the Father's testimony about His Son had been communicated to them already in Scripture. That's His point in the rest of our passage. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you don't have His Word abiding in you. That is, the Word that has already come to you in Scripture, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. These people, these Jews, have never heard God like Jesus has heard God. They have never seen God's form like Jesus has seen God's form. Remember chapter 1, verse 18, it, it describes Jesus as the one being in the bosom of the Father. They've never heard God's voice. They've never seen God's form like Jesus has seen and heard God. Jesus hears God's voice supremely. Jesus knows God's form eternally. All of their knowledge about God comes through another means. Namely, the gift of God's revelation in Scripture, what we call our Old Testament. So what's the fourth way the Father bears witness to Jesus? 
Number four, the Father wrote the Scriptures about Jesus. The Father wrote the Scriptures about Jesus. Jesus makes this point twice. He makes the point broadly in verse 39, where He includes the witness of Old Testament Scripture as a whole. It's very similar to the point He makes at the end of Luke's Gospel in chapter 24. That everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then in verse 45 to 46, he narrows his focus to what Moses wrote about him in the first five books of our Old Testament. So read them with me. Verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. They don't have a New Testament yet. It is they, the first two-thirds of the book you're holding in your hand, it is they that bear witness about me. Now verses 45 to 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because or for he wrote of me. So whether we're talking about Moses in particular or the Scriptures as a whole, Jesus' point remains the same. The Father wrote all the Bible to point people to his son, which means that if you read the scriptures for any other purpose than knowing Jesus Christ, you don't read the scriptures rightly. In fact, you will be searching them and studying them and applying them and memorizing them in vain like these Jews were in the process of doing. The great tragedy was that these Jews, they were given these scriptures by God. These Jews searched their scriptures. They banked on what Moses said in the law. They read what the Father inspired to be written, and yet they still missed the Son to whom all the scriptures were bearing witness. They read this law and that law as ends in themselves, like, just like we saw they were doing with the Sabbath instead of seeing that the whole purpose of their existence was to bear witness to the Christ himself and the redemption God would accomplish in him. They did not see that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We've been seeing this witness of Scripture in John, this witness of Scripture to the Son playing itself out in the Gospel of John, so we need not wonder what Jesus means here. For example... Just to give you a few, John's gospel begins with the same words Moses wrote in Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, and John does so to reveal that God the Father created the world through God the Son, meaning everything else he does in that world always involves his divine Son. He does nothing for his people apart from the divine Son. Start there in Genesis 1 and then read your Old Testament. Or when the sun came from heaven to earth, John describes it for us in terms of the sun 
dwelling or tabernacling, literally pitching his tents, his tent among us. So that God's tent in the wilderness was never an end in itself, but always anticipated the much greater dwelling of God with man in the person of Jesus. The great exodus that Moses wrote about. When God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, Egypt was only a foretaste of how God would ultimately deliver his people from sin through Jesus Christ. In fact, John even implies that the death of the Passover lamb formed a picture of what God would ultimately provide through the death of Jesus. Namely, our final deliverance from sin and death. We could go on to speak about how Jesus fulfills God's promise to Jacob to bless all nations through his offspring, or how Jesus brings the better wine of God's kingdom, just like Genesis 49:11 says. Or how Moses, lifting up the serpent in the wilderness to remove God's curse, anticipated Christ removing our curse through the cross. Or how the Sabbath law looked to a day when the strife and hostility of the present sinful world would be lifted and again restored to its original rest through the work of Jesus Christ in his cross and resurrection. And John's just getting started. We've got 16 chapters to go. Manna in the wilderness next week pointing to Jesus as, as the bread of life. Moses wrote about him. The point Jesus is making to these Jews is clear. His father has borne witness to him in Israel's scriptures and the Jews totally miss him. To use Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 15, they have failed to see that the sacred writings are able to make them wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know they've missed the Father's testimony in Scripture? Because they don't want Jesus for eternal life. They want Jesus dead and they want him out of their religious hair. Why is that? Why is it, after so many clear witnesses by the Father, that they want him gone? Here's where this passage comes crashing into our own hearts. Their entire history, from creation, through the fall, through the patriarchs, through the exodus, through the promised land, through the rise and fall of kings, through the judgment in Babylon, through the prophets, through their return to the land, through the psalms that they sing. Everything was written to prepare them for the Christ. Then the Father sends John the Baptist to announce, hey, here he is, his name is Jesus Christ. And on top of that, the Father not only announces him from heaven, but he even makes it obvious to everyone by giving Jesus all kinds of special works that reveal his glory and his power and his divine nature and his mission to save the world, and they still refuse to believe. Verse 38, you don't believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, you do not receive me. Verse 47, you don't believe Moses' writings. How are you going to believe my words? Why is it that they're refusing to believe the Father's witness concerning his Son? Pages and pages and pages 
of bearing the father bearing witness to his son? What's at the core of their being that keeps them from being saved by coming to Jesus? The answer appears in verse 44. How can you believe? It is, how are you even able to believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The same indictment appears in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 42 to 43. But it becomes even more pointed. When John describes how some of the Jews respond to Jesus, he says this, Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. And we're all going, hurrah! Finally, these authorities have believed. Not so fast. Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess that they believed. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then he explains what's at the root of that. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That means their rejection of Jesus, their mishandling of the scriptures, is not ultimately an intellectual problem. Jesus is not coming to these people saying, oh, you just haven't connected all the dots rightly. He's saying, you have a moral problem. Your heart is utterly corrupt. It loves the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's why you read the Bible the way you do. Self-glorification. You have a moral problem, not an intellectual one. The desire for human praise is always opposed to faith in Christ. Because the desire for human praise ultimately says that I am the worthy one, not God. And that's not just a Jewish problem, is it? That is a universal problem we all suffer from. The desire for human praise doesn't want to admit that I am ugly in sin, that I am selfish to the core, that I will use others for my own ends, that I am weak and vulnerable and empty inside, that I am desperate for a savior. The desire for human praise will only put up a facade so that others make much of us and think much of us. Instead of bowing at the feet of Jesus as the only worthy one, the desire for human praise will lead us into a life of constantly seeking the approval of others. Test yourself to see if the desire for human praise is in you. Does any part of your life revolve around what others think of you? That is, at some level, your sense of well-being, your identity, depends on the opinions of others. Here's an easy one. You ever been singing with all your might to the Lord, with your headphones in or something, 
and somebody walks in the door and you just shut down. <clears throat> Embarrassment is like filling up, right? Like I was doing at Starbucks, had my earbuds in, but it wasn't actually plugged into my computer. And I'm just blaring the computer. I think it's coming into my ears, but it's not. It's just going everywhere <laughs> in Starbucks. Right? They know I like Shylin. So. <clears throat> right? Embarrassment. Have you ever sat in a care group meeting and not answered a question? I might not sound too, I might not be intellectual enough to answer the question. And I don't want to let anybody know that I don't, that I don't really know what he's asking either. Maybe you, you refrain from confessing your sins to others or praying out loud because all that's racing through your mind is what will they think of me if they know the sin and what will they think of my prayer? Will they discover that I don't even know how to talk to God? If that's true of you, the desire for human praise is waging war against your relationship with Jesus. Or do you ever find it difficult to say no to other people, even though biblical wisdom indicates that you should say no? You just keep taking things on. You're a people pleaser when biblical wisdom is saying you, you, should, you should say no. Or are you always second-guessing decisions because of what so-and-so might think? Do you avoid people because you're afraid of what they might or could or will say about you? Are you angered easily when other people cross your agenda or interrupt your plans or even criticize your ideas in front of others? Have you ever backed down from sharing the gospel with someone out of fear of how foolish you may look or how inarticulate you may sound? It's really easy for us to criticize these Jews for their blatant unbelief despite all the witnesses to Jesus' glory. But the truth is that the same desire for human glory and praise and approval that hinders their faith is often raising its ugly head in us. If we're not careful to satisfy our souls with Jesus, we will seek to satisfy our souls with the compliments of man. We will become what some have called approval junkies. People who vainly attempt to preserve our self-image, who hide our sinfulness from others, who want to be in control of everything, who want everyone else to think that we are somebody, will attempt to fatten our souls on glory that comes from others because we think they have the power to give us what we need, more success, a higher position, a greater sensation, a better feeling of self-worth, when the truth is that everybody in this room is bankrupt and perishing apart from Jesus Christ. What we need is not the glory that comes from men, but the glory that comes from God. We need His approval on Judgment Day if we are truly to live. And this whole passage bears witness that that approval comes to all who embrace the Father's witness about Jesus Christ. 
The Father didn't send His Son into the world with all the pomp and pageantry these Jews would have preferred their Messiah to have. He came in humble submission to His Father's will, doing everything His Father gave Him to do to see His Father glorified, even when that meant death on a cross, so that we might live. The Father sent the Son into the world that we might be liberated from the desire for human praise, forgiven for thinking we are the center of the universe, and welcomed into a relationship with God where true glory resides. When we come to Christ, we can rest from our anxious toil of seeking the approval of others because our meaning and purpose no longer resides in the praise of others, but in the glory of God Himself given to us in full through our relationship with Jesus Christ. This, this receiving the glory that comes from the only God is where we truly learn to live because the same glory will one day fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The city that we who are in Christ will live in will have no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. And I'll tell you something, we don't have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth to taste that glory. Daily, it's available to us through communion with Jesus Christ. And you know how that communion happens? With both elbows over the Word of God. Turning page after page after page to listen to the Father bear witness to His Son and what His Son has done on your behalf. It comes by reading and enjoying the Father's witness to His Son in Scripture. It comes with sitting down with brothers, brothers and sisters and saying, would you tell me more of Him today? Would you show me more of Him today? I don't understand this text. I don't understand how you're getting these conclusions. Would you tell me more? It comes with asking God to show you wonderful things in His Word with hard thinking over what God has written, expecting Him to give you understanding in everything. The Father has borne witness to Jesus. The question is, will we believe His witness? Will we let our pride hinder us from searching the Scriptures that we might know Christ? Will we let, or will we let His witness in Scripture abide in our hearts that this Word may be a guiding light to us to lead us to Christ for eternal life? He says these things. Jesus says these things. He said these things to the Jews. He says these things to you and to me in order that we might be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us grace to walk with one another 
in holiness and righteousness, that you will fill us with the Spirit that we might be driven away from all of our vain seeking of the praise of man, and that you will lead us to be a community of people who find our identity in Jesus Christ alone and what He has done for us. May the banner that we carry all of our days be all we have is Christ. And when you use your word where you have borne witness to your Son to transform us into this kind of people. I ask it in His name. Precious name, the name of Jesus, amen.